0: Rebuilding Your Life, Moving from Disaster to Prosperity, with Susan Shereyko, where we help you transform your life by changing what you're telling yourself. Whatever your circumstances, you can experience health, financial security, and a sense of well-being once again. And now, here's your host, Susan Shereyko.
1: On behalf of Rebuilding Your Life Radio and the Train Your Brain, Claim Your Power calls, welcome. Today, let's welcome Peter Worth to the program. Peter is the author of several books, including The Seeker Chasing Ghosts, which is an exploration of the seeking process, where it takes you. Sometimes you're sure of what you find, and other times it's more like chasing ghosts. Hence the title. So please join me as we wave our hands to welcome Peter Worth. Hello Peter. Thank you very much for being available to to talk to us today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. You know, I had the opportunity to speak with Peter before this call, and at the time he was surrounded by boxes. He has just relocated from New York to Florida. So how's the unpacking coming, Peter?
0: It's coming better. The big accomplishment today was I think I finally got the lighting right in my office. So,
1: ooh. <laughs> have you had the time? Have you had the time to explore your environment yet?
0: Yeah, a little bit. We, we were down here during when the pandemic hit in March for a couple of months. So we, um, we took the time then to, uh, take a look at the various areas and just explore. And, um, and so we know the area a little bit, um, not really where our house is. We're just learning to know our neighbors and everything like that, but the area generally we, we, uh, we, we know or are getting accustomed to. So that's, that's exciting.
1: That is exciting. Peter. So much of what you write about discusses deep reflections and study on our inner makeup and mysticism. But before we get to your book and your personal inner work, can you tell us a bit about your background and what specific experience led to your studies in writing?
0: So um, uh, I've been a tennis player for most of my life um, and as an undergrad, undergraduate, I studied ancient studies along with business economics, and that was sort of the beginning of sort of the two prongs of of most of my um, professional and intellectual life, um, one of which led me to, you know, systems and software development, which is, you know, um, uh, the the bulk of my professional career right now, and the other led to, uh, which was wrapped up very much in, in tennis and sort of the, the idea of peak performance and um uh, uh the zone i guess it's called on the um on the athletic side uh which is sort of a, a serene mental state in which you know basically the physical form the body is able to perform at its peak for long and extended periods of time um then that ancient studies track led uh into yoga and then into studying with some some monks of the Ramakrishna order on the upper east side of manhattan which i did for many years and uh, in turn, in my early 20s, started writing and exploring some ideas primarily of, uh, you know, it started as kind of a dichotomy between religion and science, which is, you know, cliche to a certain extent. But on the other hand, it's such a major rift. Um, and you can see it kind of in the, in the sort of the body politic and, and also in, in the um, uh, kind of the socioeconomic landscape today as well. Uh, materialism versus, uh, uh, you know, idealism to a certain extent, and um, and started writing. And in fits and spurts, as, as as writers do, I guess you could say, and things started to develop into something a little bit more serious in the last 10 years where I started to package up some of that work into first just essays that I was publishing about certain topics that I was doing research in, and then that grew and expanded into a couple of books that I published, which is a, a pretty uh, decent-sized body of work at this point. So
1: and it sounds like it. Now, and don't forget that you also got married and had children in the midst of all of this okay. as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, yes. So what yes, you uh, exactly. you you know it, I mean that's a full life. You didn't you weren't sitting around um, eating bonbons as they say. <laughs> what 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 are the names of the books that you've written?
0: So the first one that I wrote, which is uh, a little bit more of a personal aspect, because, you know, this exploration of the mind, which, you know, is a very personal journey, I think, for everyone. Um, But then it sort of bleeds into the history of the study of the mind as well. And those were sort of the two sides. It started with Snow Cone Diaries, which, you know, in the title it has diaries there. There's some personal stuff there. I invented a character supposed to be a work of fiction, you know, an individual that goes on an intellectual journey, a tennis player, and so on. And that was the first book. And it was clear after that that there were certain areas that I really didn't feel like I explored and, and kind of given their due. And that became more sort of uh, an academic type of research. And I started writing more articles and books, which uh, eventually um, evolved into, you know, the work of Theology Reconsidered. Um, which has come in a couple of different forms, but that's primarily the, the bulk of, of kind of what, what I'll call the academic side of, of the things that I've produced. And then in the midst of all that, it became very clear that, you know, the work is just difficult to digest given um, its, its length and given some of the technical terms that are used throughout. And I wanted to make something that was a little bit more approachable um, that also reflected this kind of intellectual journey um, and this uh, uh, that, you know, I was going on, which ended up being The Seeker, which is a um, a group of about 80 poems um, that I wrote over a couple of years that packaged up into that book that I guess was published in maybe 2017 or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. But so that's how that came about.
1: Well, this is I mean, this is a pretty varied approach to your writing different directions. Uh When we last spoke, I came away with a definite sense of academic mastery of the theology and the history uh, involved in our um, seeking pursuits. But you also had, uh, I have to say, you also describe a great deal of what I would call a mystic path or a mysticism path. And you just mentioned, you alluded to it a minute ago about the the Ramakrishna Muns, uh, Program, and you had told me that you you actually did your you you were initiated in his tradition uh, of with the about the Dantas as well as you did your thesis on hermitism. I mean yeah, that's so a pretty it's, it's, wild it's, range of things.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's
1: it's a it's a strange thing. Like
0: it just kept the same sort of ideas and kind of areas kept. Uh, kind of revisiting me in a way, whether it was the mythology that I was really into as a child, the ancient studies, which I got into in, in my undergraduate um, years, and then yoga, which I kind of fell into while I was traveling and playing and the Upanishads specifically, which are kind of the philosophical under uh, infrastructure of Vedanta, which is uh, you know, kind of the core of Indian philosophy that underpins in Hinduism. And, uh, and that in turn, you know, the, the very serious academics in the Ramakrishna order. And so I was drawn to them in their study of the Upanishads, the old uh, Hindu scriptures, and some of the other texts and some of the other monks that uh, uh, that had studied and were continuing to teach here in the West. So, I mean, it was it was kind of a very consistent thread over a long period of time that uh, it kind of, you know, to use the chase and ghost analogy a little bit, it was, you know, it was chasing me to a certain extent, you know, and, um, and so I followed it. And then the writing for me, and we talked a little bit about this before, you know, the writing for me was a way for me to study and learn and understand some of the material, which is, um, you know, pretty deep and it can get complicated at times. And I also was covering a a pretty wide stretch of, um, of disciplines from a philosophical standpoint in antiquity. So, The writing was a way for me to say, all right, I want to understand ancient Chinese philosophy. I don't really understand it right now, but I need to in order to establish my thesis of some of the uh, exchanges of ideas in antiquity and some of, uh, you know, what did mysticism mean uh, to the ancients and was there any lost knowledge there? These were some of the things that I was trying to understand. And so in doing that... I I would write a couple of chapters specific to Chinese philosophy, pull that together and then, and then move on. But, uh, and that over I really, time, that's, that's where yeah. the book came from really.
1: Right. I mean, I see, I, as I look back over my notes in order to, to, to see where this talk was going to go today, I saw this, this, these four types of yoga that you described and, uh, the Chinese, and then the, the, there was the Chinese, and there was Judeo-Christian writing, there was the Abraham writings, and Islam, all part of your overview to, to get sort of a global sense of a world mindset and, and certain patterns that evolve out of it. Uh, I was, I, I, and you even mentioned, you know, looking at genetic mapping and human migration as part of this whole picture.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, in in my trying to understand kind of the way the ancients looked at the mind, effectively, Mm -hmm. right, how that eventually emerged and evolved into theology and Judeo-Christian monotheism, or really Abrahamic monotheism. I was trying to understand Mm -hmm. that. And in doing that, what I was trying to do is I was trying to look at how, in all these different ancient civilizations, how these ideas evolved. And... As I was doing that, I began to see these patterns in that evolution of those ideas. And people have talked about it before, about how in the middle of the first millennium BCE, there was this intellectual explosion across, you know, really all of Eurasia, both the Greek world, the Latin world, Roman world, uh, China, um, and Egypt as well, of this, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Confucius, Lao Tzu, all these uh, great uh, intellectual thinkers emerged during that time period as civilization was starting to um, really take over um, and explode in a way into, you know, not only what became Western civ, but also what became Eastern civ, which is, you know, that rift that I was really looking at, right. is mm-hmm. this sort of reduc- this sort of reductionist, objectivist worldview of the West and capitalist and consumerist at the same time. And this sort of more holistic, um, a naturalistic view that came from the East. And as I was exploring all of those ideas, it became clear that there was sort of a, a a single thread of not just, uh, you know, cosmology and kind of core mythology, but also in some of the skeptical ideas around knowledge and epistemology and some of these other kind of core philosophical ideas that seem to be shared across, um, very disparate cultures that, uh, really did not have a great deal of contact with each other at all in certainly in the first millennium BCE. So, and I wasn't the first person that to see this or ask some of the questions as to, you know, what might be the explanation as to why all these, you know, undercurrent of ideas uh, covered such a vast geography, even though these civilizations really weren't in direct communication with each other. So that, that was almost like a byproduct of trying to understand how, how this stuff emerged and, you know, I, I picked up on some patterns that, you know, and some threads of thought that um, that underpin really the first half of Theology Reconsidered, which is Eurasian philosophy, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that covers really the first half of that work, which could be its own book, but it ended up being, you know, I tried to pull it all Part into one. Part of the bigger.
1: Now, yeah. you also raised another question, or you alluded to it just a second ago about the fact that information is lost. And and what you had said uh me before was that we have a a thread of development of information and suddenly that information is cut and lost and suddenly there's a resurgence that occurs and takes it to another uh, dimension uh, probably a new theology emerging out of the old um, and that it made it raised questions for you about how do we figure out meaning when the argument that we've been making all this time now appears false. Where, where do you play with that? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know,
0: those are really good questions, right? I mean, one of the things I harp on a lot, um, and it seems like a, a, a little bit of a, a philosophical um, a topic, but it, 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 to me, it's core of, of belief systems, which is, you know, understands this idea of knowledge and how the ancients looked at what knowledge meant versus how do we look at knowledge today, right? And, and there's a major shift in, in how those two, um, you know, those 3,000 uh, years um, distinguish how we look at knowledge and what it is for something to be known. I mean, today, you know, science, empiricism, objective reality, I mean, these are things that are core to our understanding and worldview, not just in the West, but, you know, also, you know, taking over the, to the East as well, to a certain extent As science, is, you know, since the Enlightenment has really taken over as the predominant uh, way of thinking. Now, of course, in current times, you could, you, could, uh, you could even argue that, you know, science itself is under attack, but that's a separate issue, and I um, uh, don't want to get into that too much. But in terms of how the ancients looked at knowledge and looked at wisdom, understanding how and why things are, came about, was absolutely crucial to their understanding. And Aristotle, in his theory of causality, is is very explicit about this in terms of the the cornerstones of knowledge. And understanding the general purpose of something, and it seems trivial, is absolutely critical to understanding, you know, what a chair is. It's for someone to sit in, right? It just seems so Mm -hmm. basic. But, you know, you take that one step further and you say, well, okay, well, why are we here, right? And, you know, you take a, a modern day, not a scientist in his personal beliefs, but if you take the tradition of science necessarily, and you see this a lot in the atheist community today, uh, folks like Sam Harris, and there's a bunch of them that are out there that spend a lot of time bashing religion, which, you know, you have to under, you have to, the basic question of why we're here is core to us being human, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm.
0: In, a, in a in a very real sense, that's been lost. And, mm-hmm. you know, while we can all make very strong cases as to why religion is, you know, has its pitfalls and isn't true, and the Bible was written by human beings and all of that, but, you know, once you pull that rug out from under people, they're what are they left with? Why are we here? What are we doing mm-hmm. here? Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You know, this this idea of mysticism, which is kind of the, the, the word that's been given in academic circles to these sort of paranormal kind of supernatural, uh, personal, very subjective experiences that, you know, in the 1960s, Aldous Huxley, Doors of Perception, all that stuff. And um, what does that really mean? And what does that indicate? And what does that point to? Right. I mean, a lot of that was trying to recreate that tradition is trying to recreate, re-understand. Um, why are we here? And is there something uh, bigger than us as individuals? And, you know, to go through life and not for me, at least personally, to go through life and not really have a handle on that question was untenable after a while. I just, I I couldn't, I needed to understand at least to chase all of the lines of thought down as best as I could to try and get a handle on, you know, what we were, you know, why we were here what what I could gather and glean from, you know, the longstanding mystical tradition that undercurrents not only Western Civ, but also Eastern Civ um, and try and, you know, come to terms with how I could apply that to my own life ultimately. Right.
1: Right. Well, you know, you, what seemed apparent to me is that you went at some point you went beyond the purely academic or purely intellectual analysis and, came into contact with quantum consciousness and the broader states of consciousness that we work with, which for me is in essence is the mystical. Um, Is that something you would say is true that you, that's where you were headed at that point? Yeah.
0: I mean, we, we talked a little bit about this last time, right? And I mean, ultimately, look, I'm a computer scientist by training, right? I mean, I have a master's in computer science. I build, complex software systems. I mean, I'm an engineer, right? And we mm-hmm. talked a little bit about the, the application of some of those building block concepts with, you know, philosophy and metaphysics. There's, there's kind of a neat transference there. But as it relates to mysticism specifically, you know, I studied in a tradition that believed that um, very fundamentally that, you know, that, that God is real and can be directly experienced, right? So the Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna, the sage uh, in 19th century, uh, excuse me, 18th century Magnali saint, and the monastic order that was founded in his name fundamentally believes that to the core. Um, And Vedanta as a philosophical discipline also believes that to the core that, that God himself, God himself or herself can be realized by the human individual. And that in turn should be the goal of life. Right? So, you start with that as sort of a premise, at least in, that's the way I was you know, trained and taught from, uh, from a spiritual point of view and from a philosophical point of view. And then, you know, you're given a, a mantra and a meditation practice that, you know, I've used for, for many years that became sort of my way to manifest that in my life, right? It's like my teacher used to say this all the time, Swami Addiswarananda a brilliant man, um, author himself, um, in a long, you know, line of of brilliant academics and and authors used to say, you know, it's like you you go to the doctor, right? And the doctor says, you know, you need to take vitamins, you know, twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, and you need to go out for walks. You know, let's say you have a heart condition or something like that. Mm -hmm. And he used to say that sort of the spiritual practice and the particular uh, mantra and the practice that he gives to his students was the medicine effectively. And, Mm. you know, it was uh, supposed to be sort of the cure for the kind of delusion of reality that we all kind of go through on our daily lives of chasing money and, um, um, and all sorts of other things that people are chasing all over the place and get lost in, in many respects. And so I experimented with that for many years. And as a scientist kind of closing this thought out and particularly as I wrote the seeker, um, I would, you know, get up early in the morning and then I would practice meditation and sort of cultivate a certain state of mind before and as I was writing. And then after I was done writing, I would go to work and that would be a completely different frame of mind. And so the writing in particular in The Seeker became sort of a an artifact of that mystical experiment, as it were, right? What are the mm-hmm. ideas that I explore in that state? And, you know, how does that reflect sort of not just a cosmic consciousness, but also an individual consciousness. And that is all sort of packaged up in, in the seeker, which, um, and so it's, it's a bit of an experiment, um, as well. And, you know, it's hard, you know, look, you've, you've been exposed and, and, and looked at this and had some of your own experiences as well. And it's, you know, it's very hard to put your finger on what these things mean. Right. Um, Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm.
0: and, uh, you know certain states just, of mind seem very real when you're in them, and then you know lo and behold
1: a couple of days pass and
0: it just things seem very very different right
1: yes so did at at its core did you when you're in this form of meditation and doing this experiment, do you have an experience of the source or source energy
0: yeah you you at least in my in my um Look, in my practice, um, the way that I think of it in terms of, like, an intellectual framework, right, because, again, I'm an engineer, right?
1: Mm-hmm, so
0: mm-hmm. I'm thinking about building blocks. You know, to me, meditation and the mantra specifically, and also there's a physical practice, there's a lighting of incense, the candles, there's a – you truly, really want to get all your senses involved in cultivating a certain state of mind. There's a, a rising of thought, Um, And it's arising along sort of uh, the Platonic forms and the Platonic kind of concentric circle of ideas, right? So you're kind of, you're, you're almost um, climbing up a ladder of, you know, intellectual ascension, right? It's very almost Neoplatonic in terms of how Platonus talks about the one and the many and forms. You're basically climbing that ladder in meditation, or at least that's the way, that I think about it sometimes. And Mm -hmm. you don't always go to the same place, right? Sometimes you're, you know, literally taken from, you know, your state of mind and pulled in an entirely, um, you know, uh, beyond the ladder almost experience. That to me is is pretty rare. Um, But your method of ascent is consistent, right? At least in the tradition that in the way I was taught. So, you basically get up on the ladder the same way every time and you attempt to climb. And, um, you know, where, how high you end up going, you know, depends upon, you know, the day and, and all sorts of other things. But, you know, part of, look, part of what they, you know, what I was taught, which I, I think as I, you know, as I get older and more experienced with, with some of these things makes more and more sense is that, you know, the experiences, themselves while they're interesting and some of them are illuminating in many respects and um, you know and you could see them in, in the seeker you know so I'm, I'm documenting them effectively or at least documenting some of the um, things that I that I was you know intellectually exploring in, in those different states but the harder part and to me the you know the more I don't want to say the more interesting part but the more sort of palatable part and the tangible part um, is your ability to apply some of these things into your daily life and into, um, you know, not only your relationship with your family, but also your relationship with coworkers or colleagues or um, other people that you're interacting with. So, and, and that's that's hard. Um, you know, I mean, when you're going to the mat in the morning and you're lighting candles and you're sitting and you got, you know, no one's bothering you and, you know, no one else has gotten up for the day, you know, in a certain sense, it's, you know, Um, it's relatively straightforward to practice meditation. But, you know, then you get up and you you go to work and, you know, people are stressed and they want to get stuff done. And now you're presented with all sorts of challenges. And then I think the question is, you know, the things that you're learning in your spiritual disciplines, you know, with air quotes, right, are they applicable? And, you know, do they help you in terms of providing sort of meaning to life? and also, you know, tangible ways in which you can navigate through life that are better for you, you know, make your life more fulfilling, and, you know, make it more fulfilling for the people that have to, you know, have to interact with you and, and talk to you and, and live with you, right? It,
1: it, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting because you've sort of skipped over something I wanted to ask you, which was that, that you, have, you mentioned to me that in the course of all these studies, you had a sense of something missing in our civilization. Do you have a sense of what that is?
0: Yeah, that's – yes, definitely. We touched on that a little bit at the beginning. The the best way that I can describe that is through another author that was really influential for me. And in Theology Reconsidered, I give at least a chapter or two I cover this. Is an author named Robert Pearsig who wrote two books, one, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and the other is um, Leela, well which mm-hmm. was, a, yeah, very well known. He was sort of like a cultist sort of author from the 70s. And mm-hmm. he looked at this issue uh, in great depth. Um, and, you know, there was an element of, and there's a little bit of an Eastern and Western divide here. There was an element that he described of uh, sort of a lacking of care or quality in terms of how people approached their daily activities. Uh, that seem to have been lost in this sort of objective realism, um, logical positivism, and consumerism of the West, right? It's like, and this goes back to, you know, what we were just talking about, about, you know, your meditation practice versus, you know, as you go through your daily life, right? Um, You know, your approach to the world around you is not only fundamental to your state of mind, but also to what kind of impact you can have on the world, either positive or negative. Right. And mm-hmm. so it, it, you know, Pierce, goes into sort of a very metaphysical discussion and, you know, he thinks he kind of put his hand, he put his finger on it. Um, but at least in, in, in terms of how I understand it, um, you know, this, this idea of cosmic consciousness from a mystical standpoint is extraordinarily powerful. Right. And, you know, religion as we know it today has emerged from that in one way, shape or form. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but this sort of, the smaller truth in there is, uh, you know, a deep understanding of the interconnectedness of life, um, yields all sorts of benefits. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's sort of the, the, the smaller side, the smaller truth to the larger truth of, you know, uh, you know full transfixed, you know, experience of, of cosmic consciousness, right? I mean, which is fantastic, but ultimately, unless you're a prophet, you got to come back down the next day and go to work, right? So <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> right. So I mean, if you're a poor, you know, if you're and if you're crazy and on the street and telling everybody that God is real, maybe you have had that experience, right? But no one's going to take it seriously. So, um, you know, that practical element has been something, at least in the last, certainly in the last ten, fifteen years or something, I've spent a lot of time on and, and cultivating that, and it's it's hard. You know, it's a daily
1: practice. That would be yes to yeah. maintain that balance between the high mystical and the mundane that we live in every day. Um, Has studying all of this helped you deal with that dichotomy? Uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah. In a way that I wouldn't have expected. Um, In you know, you kind of come full circle uh, in terms of how you approach your, um, your day-to-day life and how you approach, you know, your relationships, like I was saying before, either professional or personal. In that, you know, you understand kind of the interconnectedness and you also have a longer arc of, of kind of perspective in terms of, and one of the things I like about books too, right, is that you have a way of getting into the mind of someone that may not, you know, may not still be alive. So, you know, that sort of longer perspective, you know, allows you to focus on certain things in your life that you might not, um, that you might not consider to be important, at least day to day, and so uh, it, it's it's helped, but not in the way, you know. I think and the seeker chasing ghosts, in, in a sense, sort of alludes to this, right? I mean, you know, the first ten or fifteen years as I was exposed to these meditation practices, you're definitely chasing, you know, you're chasing these experiences, and you, you know, a lot of people fall into that trap, and I was really no different. Um, and you know this person had this experience, and you know, and you read about it, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And you know, if I just practice meditation more, I could have more experiences. And but, you know, over time, it um, it at least dawned on me that sort of this practical, kind of day to day, how do you approach your life and what impact you have on others becomes, you know, almost more prevalent, and more important than. Um, than those experiences themselves, right? And uh, mm-hmm. what I like about the Ramakrishna Order is they're very clear in in their their kind of direction and emphasis, not on the spiritual experiences themselves, but on and you know sort of you get this those four different yogas that we talked about, right? On devotion, Bhakti Yoga, Gana or study or knowledge, right? Um, mm-hmm. Raja Yoga, which is the meditation practice itself, which is Patanjali's Yoga. And then karma yoga, which is the work, right, which nobody really wants to do, right? I mean, <laughs> no, nobody wants to go and feed the poor, right? I mean, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. spiritual awakening is about, you know, realizing that, you know, that which is in you is, is no different than that which is in everybody else, right? And there's truth to that. But so what's the implication? The implication is, hey, why don't you feed the poor, you know? I mean, okay. and, you know, if you really want spiritual growth and awakening, you know, you should be helping other people. Right. And, but, but nobody wants to do that work. Right. Everybody wants to meditate and have a great experience and, you know, and, and feel ecstatic and, and, you know, and then be a guru. Like, you know, you know, but there's, it doesn't work like that.
1: No, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't. So, so, in your book, this, um, the seeker, um, you have, you know, you've been doing these meditative processes and cr- translating it to your poems, which deal with all sorts of life experience. Um, you know, from I think we've talked about love and loss and relationships, and you know what it's like to, you know, be in a family and have relationships or be in a romance and a marriage and that sort of thing. is Is there something about that that stands out in your message through that poetry?
0: Well, you know, you have this, um, I was just uh, having a dialogue with somebody online about um, some work that they were, um, some papers they were working on about psychology and Jungian versus Freudian psychology. And, you know, there's this idea of, As, you know, as within, so without, right? And I think there's some quotes Mm -hmm. in the Bible from Mm -hmm. Jesus around that as well. And so, you know, the mystical journey, and in in many ways, um, and I speak a lot about this in the book, which is is somewhat, uh, at least profound when I fell on it, which is this idea of you know, the creation of the cosmos and these sort of ancient um, mythical narratives about how the universe is created in many respects are the inverse of sort of the the inward mystical experience, which ended up being uh, wrapped up very much in alchemy and also hermit uh, hermiticism, which I which I studied as well, um, which is this idea of the transformation of the soul and so this sort of psychological journey, which is very much reflected in the seeker in terms of the topics, love and loss. I'm just reading from the different areas here. Uh, The mystery of life, the play of the divine meditation and the mind, and then parting thoughts on humanity and civilization, right? You have this sort of ascent from, you know, individual suffering and pain of, you know, really living and being in relationships, right? That, is is you know we all go through that just whether it's love or romantic or our parents or children or um there's all love and loss there and then you know what does that what does that ultimately mean and as you sort of follow some of those emotions well what's higher than that then you get into sort of this concept of you know mysticism and you know the mind and um you know with a capital m necessarily and um you know some of the problems that confront not just the individual but the society, right? Um, right. And humanity as a whole, right? And and that really is the undercurrent of of you know the the, the work in seeker is this sort of starting idea of um, you know human suffering, um, love and loss, and all that sort of stuff, and you know uh, uh, and going up the ladder to something bigger, right?
1: Yes. Okay, um, there's so much to cover in this topic. It's just uh, you know, it's a mind boggler. We could spend hours on all of this. So yes, people yes, spend lifetimes doing it. this, right? You know. I see. So,
0: decades, decades, decades doing it. Doing it right? Exactly,
1: exactly. So, <laughs> yes. where when when people learn about this book, where can they find it?
0: Uh, probably the best place to go is uh, my blog, uh, Snowcone New York. I think it's Snowcone. I need to get my domain right. Bear with me one second. Uh, snowconenewyorkcity.com. And Is that
1: spelled out? That's,
0: yes, snowconenyc.com. Okay, thank you. And you can have basically a digital copy of really all of my work there. I'm in the process of transcribing uh, Theology Reconsidered there. I'm, I'm about three-quarters of the way done. Most of the work is there, and then if you go in the about the authors section, you can actually get books and all the stuff that I've published is there too, including some articles um, in some journals too. Uh, But that's probably the best place to learn about um, all the stuff that I've uh, I've written. And you can also one of the nice things about that is you can search on certain topics, so um, you don't necessarily have to start at the beginning and go straight through the end. I know a lot of people are used to you know navigating through websites and so on, and um, the snowcone dot com blog gives you an opportunity to kind of drill through into areas of interest and not get uh, caught up, you know, reading from page one to to page eleven hundred and sixty seven, which I think is the
1: right.
0: the <laughs> length of the, the length of that work. So
1: okay, you did a lot of work, I see. Well, I, I yeah. really appreciate your spending time with us today, Peter. There, these are existential thoughts that require a lot of time for us to impact, you know, unpack you know, and, and as we said, it's enough to fill a lifetime. So it's my hope that all may love, prosper, and grow in love, in, uh, in joy, and well-being as they pursue these inner pursuits. Let's remind Go ahead. Thank you
0: very much for having me on, and I appreciate the same sentiment back to you as well.
1: Thank you. Let's remind our listeners, we've been talking with Peter Wirth about his book, The Seeker Chasing Ghosts, which is available at his blog or website, snowconenyc.com. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us today. You know, we support the work of authors when we buy their books, recommend, or give them as gifts to others. So you can also support the work of this program by going to the Anchor FM podcast, Train Your Brain, Claim Your Power. You can like us, follow us, subscribe, or become a sponsor. And if you'd like to stay connected with our community of authors, you can register at SusanSharako.com and receive a copy of the Survivor's Guide, 12 Tips to Gain Inner Peace at the Same Time. So thank you for letting us give authors a voice today. Thank you again for being with us, Peter.
0: Thank you, Susan.
1: And once again, it's time to go, everyone. Bye for now and have a great day.
0: Thank you very much for tuning in today. If you've been inspired by this show, leave a rating or review on iTunes and visit www.rainbowsoverrunes.com to receive a free chapter from Susan's book. On behalf of Susan Shireko, this has been Rebuilding Your Life, Moving from Disaster to Prosperity, Sharing the Journeys of Those Affected by Sudden and Great Loss and What They Did to Heal,
1: Rebuild, and Where They Are Now.